Well, it's been an interesting last couple of weeks if you are a political-oriented person, okay? If you're part of politics, if you have any role to play, if you participate on the local or larger level, if you are just a maybe armchair politician, if you like to observe from afar, it's been a very, very interesting last couple of weeks as both parties have held their conventions. Um, it's interesting because as Christians, we like to say um, and like to compare, especially in political election seasons, um, the presidency of the United States or really any kind of authority figure in humanity to what we believe about Jesus. And what we believe about Jesus as Christians is that through his death and resurrection, he now is the Lord or President, capital P, of the entire world. Um, That he, um, not in the future, but right now, controls all of it and stands over all of it. Even though it's not all shaped to his will right now, his kingdom is slowly being worked out. That his exaltation... Um, his inauguration was with the resurrection and with his ascension to heaven. When, when we say Jesus ascended to heaven, we don't mean he disappeared from the scene. He went somewhere to take his seat at a throne, the right hand of the Father. This is Jesus going to the Oval Office. We compare it to the inauguration when the president gets sworn in. It got me thinking with the conventions, okay, so if Jesus... It's, it's kind of like the president, and if the ascension, the resurrection and ascension is kind of like his inauguration, what would Jesus' convention be like in his lifetime? Like what would be the moment in Jesus' lifetime where he like accepts the title? Like, I'll make a run for this. I'll be this Messiah. I'll be this king. I'll bring God's will to earth as is in heaven. I'm thinking there's a few options maybe you could choose from. Maybe it's Jesus' baptism where he goes into the water and hears the heavenly voice, God the Father, say, you are my son. It's a kingly term from Psalm 2. And then Jesus starts his ministry like a politician. He starts going town to town, preaching and gathering followers, getting votes. Or maybe that's more like his primary season. Maybe the convention was at the Mount of Transfiguration when he says, okay, after all of this preaching and people debating and we've talked about the issues who, who are people saying that I am? And who do you say I am, my disciples? And Peter says, you are the king. You're God's king who will one day rule over the world. And he accepts that title. Maybe that's him coming out like a Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton and saying, I accept the nomination. I am this person and will make a run for this. Or maybe it's at some point during the passion narrative where Jesus is sweating blood and and praying and and lining his will with the Father's will, or being flogged or being crucified. Maybe that's maybe when Pontius Pilate puts the title above Jesus' head in irony uh, and in mockery, saying "King of the Jews." Maybe that's when Jesus says, "Yes, this is my title. Yes, I accept the the nomination." Either way, as a pastor, it's my job to let you know in a political climate of anger and fear and anxiety that things are going to be okay, all right? Um, I've now been a pastor through two political elections, which is saying something because I've only been alive for like two and a half, all right? Um, 
And I've learned a thing or two about not only political elections, but also the rhetoric that people use during political elections, and also how pastors maybe should or shouldn't get involved in the political arena. And so I'd mentioned in the past that particularly in this atmosphere, that maybe I I would not be as outspoken as I was in 2012. In 2012, I was a little bit more motivated to have a Christian a distinctively Christian response to either side of the political realm because of my experience in 2008, where I heard a majority of Christian leaders tell me and other people, um, put the fear of God in us, that if Obama was elected, the world would end in six months or a year. Like literally, I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I mean, respected evangelical Christian leaders who are like, I have 70 people who listen to my podcast that's acutely being recorded right now. They've got millions, and they still listen to them. And then I'm, as a young kid, going, look, it's 13 months later, and things are about the same. You might not like Obamacare, but really, if you've learned anything, he's not as liberal as he, thought, he said he was. Look at the war, look at the drones, look at what's going on. So let's all calm down with our rhetoric, was the message in 2012. Um, and when I said that, it created some confusion, so I wanted to clear that up. Um, I don't mean I'm not going to comment on politics. It's a very important part of our life, or on this political election. What I wanted to say was simply this. The role of a pastor and the role of the church in general is not to baptize either party. It's not to sprinkle Jesus on the Republicans or to sprinkle Jesus on the Democrats. And my role as a pastor, is not to be the chaplain for the Republican Party or the chaplain for the Democratic Party or the chaplain for the Libertarian Party or the Green Party or the unformed but maybe formed Bernie Sanders third-run party. My role as a pastor is to criticize every party. And I will do that as well as I can. And if it upsets you, yes. Because every party, often I think they have the same goals with just different ideas of how to achieve them. But in heightened rhetoric seasons, we try to pretend there are much bigger differences than actually get played out in real life when people get in office. We try to separate and divide. We know these are anti-Christian things. Christian body is a unified body. We live in unity even amongst disagreement. And so if there's a problem on this side, if there's a problem on this side, if I see something that doesn't look like the cross of Jesus, I'm going to shoot an arrow. The point of it was just to say, I've got no sides in this. Now guess what? I've got kind of a side. Like I might be casting a ballot in November, right? But my role as a pastor is not to influence a vote. Let's get some perspective here. The next four years of America's history is not that important. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay it completely and, and be like, politics is important. The presidency is important. Obviously, lots of lives could be at stake. A whole lot of big decisions could be made. But let's look at world history. America is like a blip on the screen at this point. We're a young 200-year experiment. And let me, let me be very clear about this. God does not need America. We could crumble in the next four years because of a bad presidential vote, and God wouldn't be like, well, there goes everything. 
How will I ever accomplish my purposes now? The future does not hang in the balance with the American public's ability to vote the correct candidate or a party's ability to nominate the correct candidate. And so some perspective, I think, is important. And then, light of the last two conventions, where there's lots of anger and anxiety and accusations on both sides, I want to tell you, it'll be okay. That's not to say that there won't be rough patches. That's not to say that bad decisions can't be made. That's not to say that it's not important. That's just to say, in a larger eternal picture, God is not dependent on these things. And neither should the church. Our confidence, in spite of a very conflicting, confusing political cycle, should be a sign to the world that we have a king who's already been elected, and you cannot be dethroned. Can I get an amen to that? And so we follow Jesus, and whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian or a Green Party or whatever you are, my job as a pastor and our job as a church is to faithfully follow Jesus and to do that as best we can, which brings us perfectly to the book of James. So if you have a Bible, open up with me to the book of James. We've been in it for a few weeks now. We're in a series where we're working through it line by line, passage by passage. James is all about living out Jesus' teachings. James is Jesus' brother. It's the earliest book in the New Testament that we have. It was written probably in 40 AD, so just years after Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection. And in James chapter 2, where we'll pick up, we'll see a lot of things that actually play hand in hand with a lot of the things that you might have heard out of the convention, if you had watched one or two or some of the highlights. At both conventions, there were lots of accusations and lots of um, anger and anxiety over accusations of oppression and corruptness on both sides. On both sides, there were lots of calls for justice. Now, there might be very conflicting ideas of what that justice might look like, right? Or who that justice might favor. But both sides ultimately want to form what James thinks Jesus is forming, which is a community of justice. A community of people who, because of their allegiance to a higher authority, will be able to live out in the world right now as a witness to a larger community around them, whether Rome or America or the UK or Australia or even Canada, what it means to work out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So James, this passage we'll be looking at is, is going to be about building this community of justice. It's going to be actually directly answering some of the questions and some of the fears that were behind the two conventions uh, that we just saw played out and that I think we'll continue to see played out during this election cycle. Um, and again, my call as a church and as a pastor is not to pick one side or another or even lean toward one side or another. It's to say the sides don't even matter. As individuals, we follow Jesus. And as a community, we follow Jesus. And we can do this no matter what party we're aligned with and no matter what party is in control. So let's hear the word of God through James this morning in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers. This is community. James is saying, my family, the people I belong to because of our united relationship 
to Jesus, show no partiality, have no favorites, play no favoritism. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, verse 1 in the Greek is very complex, which means if you were to look up alternate translations, you'll find all kinds of different translations translate this verse in all kinds of different ways. Because it's just kind of a confusing Greek sentence. Now, the point in all of them is very simple. It's don't play favorites. Don't show partiality. Don't pretend that one person is better than another person for whatever reason. It's that if you play favorites, if you have partiality, it's a contradiction in the faith or the devotion or allegiance that you claim to have to the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one, the Lord of glory. Now, in the book of James, Jesus is only named twice. This is the second time that Jesus is named. Some have wondered if you just took those out, if you'd even think this was a Christian book. You would because behind almost everything James says is Jesus' teachings. In fact, if we had the time this morning and you had the patience and we don't, and and I don't think you would be as kind because I get boring after 20 minutes, okay? Uh, I could go and show you reference after reference after reference for almost every verse in this passage where this comes directly from something that Jesus has taught. James is saying we, we have to live out our faith in Jesus. Next week, we'll get in the real famous passage where he talks about faith and works. He says faith that works is, is meaningless. It's dead. Here he says faith contradicts partiality. If you say you belong to, that you are aligned with Jesus Christ, the crucified one, this poor Palestinian Jew who was crucified and resurrected, if you believe in him and want to be a hearer and not a doer, then you can't show favoritism. You can't play favorites. You can't have partiality. He's going to give us an example. Look in verse 2 of how this might work out. And this is probably something that his community was struggling with. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, so we know the scene here, right? We're assembled as Christians and a homeless guy walks in and he maybe smells a little bit like alcohol and he has lots of dirty clothes on and he's got mud and hopefully mud that he's leaving behind him as he walks and there's a smell factor. And then at the same time, at the other part of our church, um, Bill Gates walks in. This is the situation. Now, everyone who's on the board at First Colony Christian Church, whether we like it or not, sees Bill Gates walk into our church and goes, Welcome, Mr. Gates. <laughs> We've been waiting for you. <laughs> Cha-ching! You've got a gold-fingered man over here you got a shabby homeless person over here. We already see the situation James is setting up. Are you going to play favorites? And if you do, you're going to be caught in the trap. You're going to be showing that you 
are not really understanding what it means to have faith in the glorious Lord Jesus. So the rich man walks in, the poor man walks in, and if you were to pay attention, the Greek is pay favorable attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. Mr. Gates, come, look, there's a great, you can hear the sound, most perfect from right here. Michelle, move away, right? This is his seat right here. Then you can see the sermon, you can listen to it, it's all right here, this is the best seat that we have. If you say to the rich man, come sit here at a seat of honor, at a seat of distinction, while you say to the poor man, hey, go, go stand over there. Why don't you go find a place just to stand? Not even like show him a seat, just go stand somewhere, right? Um, or even worse, sit down at my feet. Hey, there's a spot on the floor for you, I think, back there. He says, if that were to happen in this situation... Have you not then made distinctions or judgments among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The question is obviously yes. You have now played favorites economically. You've showed economic partiality. You have treated the rich better than the poor in hopes that somehow the poor will um, be of to your advantage. And he says this is entirely in contradiction with the faith of one who believes in Jesus Christ. We can think of, I can think of lots of reasons why this is in contradiction with people who who claim to have faith in Jesus. The first being, if you'll remember, Jesus himself was poor. I mean, if, if Jesus was walking into this assembly, he would be the guy in the shabby clothes, right? Who looked like he hadn't slept in a few days because he had no pillow for his head and he had no clothes. And he's just been walking around outside and he's kind of dirty because he hasn't cleaned up in a while. And they're saying, you worship that man, but when, <laughs> when he comes into your, your assembly, you're going to ignore him and go bow down to the rich person? And play favorites there? The word in uh, verse 1 for partiality is, is plural. Don't have favorites. There's a more literal maybe translation. And so while he gives us an example of economic partiality, there's all kinds of different ways that we can play favorites in the world, right? Consumerism and materialism can lead us to play favorites with the rich and the poor. And this is a problem inside the church and outside of the church. Ethnic differences, skin colors, races, can lead us to play favorites with one ethnicity over another. And we have racism. Social differences. Cultural differences. All kinds of the different things that divide you and I. Gender differences. Can cause you to be sexist. All of these things, anything, Scripture says, that would make you value one person and put their needs above the needs of anybody else, including yourself, he says, means you truly haven't understood what faith equals. At least not faith in the one we call king, the crucified and risen one. And so James himself is actually going to give us three reasons, okay, why such showing of partiality or favoritism is a contradiction and is evil. Here's his first reason, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? 
but you have dishonored the poor man. Here's his first reason why it's a contradiction. He says, as a matter of fact, look around you. Who are the Christians? They're the poor people. We know that there are some wealthy Christians in the early Christian community, but by and large, it was the poor and uneducated who were Christians. Um, as Christianity develops and grows now in Asia and in southern countries across the globe, it grows fastest and most primarily in uneducated and poverty-stricken areas. It's just a matter of fact that God seems to show up and work and be experienced in those types of communities. And it's a matter of fact throughout the Old and New Testament that God seems to really care about the type of people who are being oppressed. God seems to have a special heart for the needy, for the people being trampled on or overlooked, for the people being taken advantage of, for the people having their voices taken away. God himself, James says, is impartial. And so if we serve God and yet we show partiality, we prove that that we're fools, that we're deceiving ourselves, that we have sinned. We're dishonoring the poor man. We're sinning against him. Okay, so growing up, I was an athlete, and scare quotes because athlete I use in a relatively loose term, um, and so I was on the I'm on the school's basketball team. Okay, we're, we're we're preparing for a game coming up. There's two types of good teams you can prepare for. There's the type of team where just about everybody on the team is good. The team together is a good team, right? They have a good coach. They've got good plays. They might have eight or nine interchangeable players, right? It doesn't matter who's on the floor. Whatever five people are on the floor are going to do really good stuff, and they're going to be hard to beat. And so when you prepare for that team, you're not thinking of names or numbers or faces, right? You're thinking strictly in terms of like a full-on game plan. How will we as a team stop, you know, the rhythm they have on offense? How will we exploit any weaknesses they might have in the defense they usually play? But then there's an entirely different type of good team, especially in the middle school, high school level. And you you see this still kind of rising up at AAU and college, and then every now and then with an NBA superstar. There's also the type of team that's really good because they have one person. And you could put like three-year-old girls around them, and they would still win every game they played in. And this is a different type of team to prepare for entirely. With this type of team, instead of a holistic kind of game approach, I've been in these, these rooms, right? You're preparing for the game. You have a picture of that kid's face on the wall. You have his number written in big letters. You have research about him. You know where he went to middle school. You know that he hasn't started shaving yet, so you can trash talk him on the court. You know what his girlfriend's name is. You know what his girlfriend's little brother's name is. You know everything about that kid, and your entire team's goal is to stop him. And when you get on the court, you have, you have a game plan. Know where number 13 is. And then still, despite your best efforts, right, he drops 30 points, sits the fourth quarter, and they win the game handedly. And you walk away, and how do you talk about that team? 
you don't go, what a great team. Of course they're going to win. They were so talented. You go, man, that kid was good. You could have, yeah, you could have put anyone around him. He's good. This seems to be how God has chosen this team, the scriptures would say. Um, Paul says, look, look around us. God hasn't necessarily chosen the most powerful, smartest, best looking, maybe I'm excluded from that one, people to, 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 to accomplish his purposes in the world. Partly because maybe he wants the glory to be on him. He wants to show his power, flex his ability. I mean, you've got, you've got 12 uneducated, young, peasant Jews following Jesus who end up transforming the entire face of the world still to this day. And I'll explain more about that in a bit. How Christianity, starting in this tiny little region of the world with these tiny, uneducated, unimportant people, completely flipped history on its face. And when we look back on that in history books, we don't say, well, of course, he was the king of Rome. (laughs) We go, wow, there must have been some unstoppable person on that team. And it wasn't Peter or James or John. They were very stoppable. They could stop themselves. It was the Holy Spirit. It was God working through them. He says, look, we know that God is like this. So then why would we show favoritism to who we think might have the most talent or most ability or more skill or most money to offer us or our causes? I mean, you kind of see this as a kid on the playground or in your neighborhood when you're picking teams, right? Usually you're picking teams for basketball. The way it happens, I think, most sports, the two best athletes kind of de facto are the team captains. And they just kind of go best athlete by best athlete. And then the last two are me and the kid with two broken feet, okay? And we get on the team and we play because we want, we want to have fair teams. James says, that's not, how, that's not how God's working. That's not how he's been working. God is impartial. If you read Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, one thing you'll walk away from is God sends rain on the poor and the rich, on the good and the bad. God shows love without regard for deed or history or future. And thus, so should his people. So should the people who claim to have faith in him, who have received such love. If anything, if you were going to make an argument that God does show partiality, you'd make the argument that God's partial to poor people. And lots of scholars have. They call it a preferential bias. It seems like when you read the Bible, God tends to favor the people being trampled over. It's kind of like if you're watching kids on a playground, how you kind of want to go over and like push the bully down. You'd be like, you're not that tough. You're tough because he's a little kid, right? But I feel bad for him, so I'm going to lift him up. If anything, that's the partiality God shows. But he says, you're a Christian community up here and you're lifting up the rich or you're lifting up this gender or this ethnicity or this social class. He goes, boy, are you mistaken. Reason one, who God is, how he works. Reason number two, a little more practical. He says in the middle of verse six here, are not the rich ones the ones who are oppressing you and the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones you blaspheme or make fun of the honorable name by which you were called? Um, Back then, as it is now, money has the power to corrupt. 
and money often leads people into corruption. Um, the scriptures are, are very clear about this. No matter how uncomfortable it makes us, just relatively wealthy, greater Houston area residents. If you were to read what scripture says about money, it does not talk about it as a neutral object of existence. It talks about money as a power. It talks about money as something that does things, that claims allegiances, that deceives people, that battles with God for your devotion. We should not take lightly the fact that Jesus himself puts mammon, money, on the same level as God when it comes to fighting for your attention and allegiance. Jesus says you can only serve one or the other. The implication is that money actually is making a much bigger claim on your life than you might be aware of. I mean, it might be that much more powerful of an idol or false god than you, than you might normally assume. And back then, as it is now, money has a way of making sure the rich kind of get more and better justice than the poor do. And more and better education than the poor do. And more and better treatment than the poor do. And what's funny is now you can see this, both parties, really everyone in the political world kind of admits this on one level or another to one degree or another. I mean, you cannot argue with me or the statistics about the fact that a white person with a rich family who commits a crime and then hires O.J. Simpson's legal defense team will get a much better sentence than a poor person with a state-appointed lawyer who doesn't even care about his client, who is from the Fifth Ward. They'll get different trials, different juries, different hearings, different sentences. It's statistics. Look up the prison numbers. And, and that's not to say, like, I'm, I'm, I'm dogging the rich here, right? Like, I kind of, I understand. If I had the money and my kid made some big mistake, I'm going to hire the best legal representation I can for my kid. But here's what James is saying. He's saying, when someone else's kid makes a big mistake and gets thrown before the court, you should do everything that you can to make sure they get the best representation they can get. Treat them as if they were your kid. Don't show any favoritism, not even family favoritism. No partiality at all, as we'll see in this second one. And and the third reason, excuse me, that James gives here. For, for why it's evil to show favoritism, for why it's a contradiction in faith. And then as a matter of fact, James is kind of saying, look, guys, the rich are the ones who are oppressing you guys. They're the ones taking advantage of you. And now when they walk into your assembly, you're going to like kneel down at them. Like, it's kind of embarrassing, right? Like they've been making fun of you and, 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 and who you follow and, and those kind of things. And now you're going to try to like court favors from them. Like, stand up for your principles. Have some dignity, he says. Notice he doesn't say take revenge. He just says, guys, come on. These are the ones who are against you. And then you're choosing to give them favors over people in your own community who need your help maybe more, who are in more needier situations. Um, I uh, saw a special on predatory lending recently. And it was really interesting um, on how people in cycles of poverty, often working two, three jobs, 
right? And still having a hard time keeping kids in school and paying for education and paying to keep food on the table. Um, now, if you look out, there are, are these like payday advance stations and stores all over the place. Statistically, I think there's like three for every McDonald's there is or something crazy like that. I mean, like it's everywhere. And it's, it's like a hideous, evil industry. Um, it's, it's, there's a reason it's called predatory lending. I mean, it's like lions jumping onto sheep. Um, and, and what happens is someone says, I need to pay the electricity bill so my kid can stay up with the light on at night and study and go to school. But I don't get paid until Thursday, and it's Monday. And so I'm going to go to this place. They'll give me the cash, but they're going to charge me interest on it. And they're set up in such a way that the interest accumulates and you almost never get out of this debt. And people who borrowed 1000 to $2,000 end up in twenty-five dollars to $100,000 of debt years later and are trapped for life. What's interesting is a couple things. First of all, the Bible is very clear throughout Old and New Testament that charging interest is a sin, which is weird in our capitalist society where everything involves interest, so there's almost no way out of it at this point. But, but back in the Old Testament, when God was setting up economic rules, he was very, very clear. He understood that money can make money, and the rich can oppress the poor even by helping them. <laughs> even by giving them a handout and just charging a little bit extra for that time, they can actually get richer, and the poor can get poor. And so you look in the Old Testament, how God commanded the Israelites to set up their government, and it's more liberal and socialist than you could ever imagine Bernie Sanders. Every seven years, every debt is wiped away. Everything you own goes back to its original owner. There's no possible way you could set up even one generation's worth of oppression in terms of charging interest or making corrupt deals. And James is called to the church in a world of predatory lending, just as one example, right? It's to, to maybe say, how can we as a church fill the need for people who maybe need a payday advance without being predatory about it? I was talking to some people about this in the church the other day. We've got a bank account. We've got liquid assets. We have money sitting there. We can easily give, easily give an interest-free loan. Worst case scenario, we gave some money away. We made a donation, kind of also a command from Jesus, give to the needy without expecting them to give back. Best case scenario, we were able to provide for someone without preying on their need, without preying on their, their circumstance. I mean, what an easy way, I think, for churches to step in and not give advice to the world, but actually be advice for the world. Be a counterculture, a counter-community, and say, you can do economics this way, and if you're greedy and profit's all you care about, we don't have much advice for you, but if you really just care about other people and following Jesus, here's how you could do it. You could just not charge interest and help people out. And yeah, it'd get confusing and messy because often love and mercy get confusing and messy. But it's not violent and it's not evil and it's not a contradiction in faith. 
First reason, that's not how God operates. Second reason, just pragmatically, look, the rich ones who you're now bowing down to, they're the ones causing you problems in court. We think James's audience were being oppressed by uh, rich people who, who wanted to see them um, more and more outcasts in society. And then in verse 8, we get the third reason, really the meat, the substance here. If you really fulfill the royal law, that is the law of the king, or the law of the kingdom, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now, this is a quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18. If you want to write this down, if you go look at Leviticus 19, verses 12 through 18, you'll find in the book of James, he references that passage, not directly, only directly once here, but through allusions and themes multiple times. Some have suggested James as a midrash, a Hebrew commentary on that Levitical passage. In Leviticus 19.15, it actually specifically mentions accepting bribes and showing partiality to the rich. The context is very specific and similar. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, you get this very famous command from the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, this is the basis for partiality. This is why you should want that poor person to get the same legal treatment as the rich person. Because according to God, one of the commandments, one of the things he tells his people to do is to consider everyone of equal worth. And as countercultural, as counterhuman as it is to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And I don't know about you, but I love me some me. I mean, I spend a lot of time and energy and work and sweat making sure I'm taken care of. A lot. And I still only get this far. And Scripture's going to say, do all of that, but for my neighbor? Treat them exactly like I would want to be treated? And if you remember, James is probably not just quoting Leviticus 19, 18, because when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he goes to Leviticus 19 and says, well, there's two. It's the double law of love, the royal law. Love God with everything that you've got. And the second, which is the same thing he says, Love your neighbor as yourself. Regardless of social difference, ethnic difference, gender difference, family difference, nationality difference, love that person just like you would want to be loved, just like you do already love yourself. Jesus expands it even. In the Old Testament, neighbor seems to be just a fellow Jewish person. In the New Testament, Jesus says neighbor even means your enemy. I mean, even the one lobbing bombs at you, you should be treating them in such a way that you would want people to treat you. I mean, this is, this is a radical, radical approach to seeing and treating other people. But James is going to say, this is why showing partiality or favoritism of any kind is such a contradiction to faith in Jesus. You're talking about the Jesus who said, Love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus said, forgive your enemies, bless them when they curse you, pray for them, do good to them. 
You look in Matthew 7 and see Jesus say a lot of the same things about showing partiality, showing favoritism, about judgment. In fact, as we keep reading, we, we see more about judgment. In verse 9, he says, If you show partiality or favoritism, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor, as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. And if you commit if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Now, at one and the same point, James here is easy to understand and very confusing. Um, he's quoting the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. It's a fancy word for it. The Ten Commandments, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, okay? And his point is, if you break one, you're a lawbreaker, right? And we can all be like, okay, we get it. But his second point is, that it doesn't help you to say that I've kept all the other commands. He says, if you've broken one, you've broken all of them. It's like glass. If glass is broken, it's broken. It doesn't matter if there's like one little shiny piece that's still together. It's still broken glass. And at this point, we'd be like, well, hold up here. I may have murdered someone, but I really didn't commit adultery. <laughs> like there really is a distinction here. And we have to think now, though, of sin and transgressions in terms of relationship and allegiance. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, begins with, you shall have no other gods besides me. And so when you break one, what that does doesn't mean, in fact, you've actually broken every single law. It means you've broken that relationship. You said, I'm not 100% aligned to you, alleged with you, following you and all of your commands. And the same goes through into the New Testament with Jesus. You show favoritism. This proves you are this double-minded person that James talked about. This person who hasn't really quite figured out if they're really going to follow Jesus or not. They kind of want to, they kind of don't want to, they kind of know how, they kind of don't know how but they're not fully aligned. They don't have their full allegiance in King Jesus and in his royal law. He says, you can, you, can, you can do everything Jesus says except for loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is going to say, you think you were following me? Like, first of all, that was like the biggest thing I said. Second of all, you were following me, not bits and pieces of different things that I said. When you decided to throw that part away, you threw the whole relationship away. You, you, threw, the whole, you threw the whole discipleship, the whole following away. It's a contradiction with faith in Jesus. So in verse 12, he concludes, So speak, talk, and act, live like people who will be judged under the law of liberty, the law of freedom. Here's the first time James introduces this idea of judgment, which he'll come back to in our next passage when he talks about faith and works, and faith with works and faith without works. And the idea that comes up in the New Testament is that even though we are forgiven of our sins and will be shown mercy and forgiveness, it does not mean that we will not also at some level face a day of judgment before the Lord. James will go into it again in the next passage. Paul will talk about in Corinthians, and he'll say, 
Um, everybody, particularly Christians, will one day give an account for everything they've done in front of God, both good and bad. And for some of us, it'll be a longer meeting. For some of us, it'll be a much more painful and tearful meeting. Now, we don't have to fear the outcome of the meeting. If we believe in Christ and throw ourselves at his feet, but, but maybe more like a disappointed parent. It was like, after all I gave you, let's go through, this is what you did? And while that judgment and fear is not a great motivator for action, it really, it's really not, and both humans, spiritually, it just doesn't work very well, it is something to consider that maybe we better get our acts together sooner rather than later because one day we'll, we'll be faced and judged with this law. And it's the law... Very interesting of, of liberty. He's talked about this before, the law of freedom, this royal law. And, and here we get to Jesus' ideas about judgment. Matthew 7, you can see this. In verse 13 in James, the last verse of our passage, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So he says, if you show no mercy when you judge people, you're going to get no mercy when you get judged. Jesus says it like this. Um, you should judge other people's other people the way you want to be judged. So you really want to hold people to a high, strict level of where the way they use words? Then you better be willing to one day sit before God and go through that same exact standard measuring test. You want to hold high people, put people high on the level of, of, of sexual purity or um, of relational um, love and sacrifice and service? One day you might just find yourself sitting across from God and him being like, you know what, I'm pretty merciful, but you had some pretty harsh rules for other people, so let's go through your rules and see how your life lit up against that. And I would think people who hear that from their king might live a little bit more mercifully, might be a little less quick to judge and make distinctions among people. He says mercy triumphs over judgment. So James' message to the church, his message to us as individuals, to us as a community right now and to the world is that you and I as followers of Jesus are called to be a counterculture, a counter-community, a community within the rest of the world who has faith in Christ, one of which um, ways that it's evidence is through the fact that we show no partiality, no favoritism. Every single person, regardless of status or honor or talent or ability or past or future gets treated the exact same way. They get loved as if they were ourselves. And we need to often do a cleansing self-examination of where we have prejudice, where we show favoritism and partiality. Because all of us do individually play favorites in the world. Even just personality types. In churches, even our church plays favorites sometimes, systemically. A lot of times it's unconscious, right? You don't think, you're you're not like, I'm going to play favorites. I choose this person over this person. But, But all of a sudden, by making this one choice, right, you've chosen to Make sure these people aren't getting their needs met. 
Um, like we have a first service and a second service, and first service likes their music just on a piano and softer. And second service likes music where you can't really listen to the pastor afterwards because you, I don't, I've never thought that through, but I, that is curious that you come in a time where you can't really understand me. It's just a buzz in your ears when I get up to talk. Um, but if when we got together, every time all we did was the loud music, James would say, what do you do in your community here? I mean, really, what are your actions saying about who you're favoring a little bit? Are you, are you showing partiality or favoritism? There's lots of ways this can be applied and lots of ways we need to self-examine ourselves. And then in the world, individually and again institutionally, systematically, for James and for Jesus, those who have faith in Christ, and who desire to follow him are bound and obligated to this royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. A law that leads to freedom, to mercy. And as people who follow that law, as people who claim to have faith in that Lord, favoritism just doesn't fly. It's a contradiction. It has no place. And so by the power of the Spirit, may we be individuals and a community that works to rid ourselves of any hint of prejudice and favoritism and partiality. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We give thanks for our time together. I pray that you would um, create in us um, kind of many versions of the book of James, where our thoughts and words and actions themselves would be saturated with Jesus' teachings even if they're not mentioned or explicitly cited or quoted, Father, that Jesus and his will for our lives would be the influencing factor in almost everything that we think and do and say throughout the week. I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would help us um, be a community that shows no partiality um, to the rich, to the poor, um, to the um, male, to the female, to to the black, to the white, to, to all the different distinctions and divisions that we make here as human beings, um, but that we would um, fulfill and love this royal law. Um, we know that we are dependent on your Spirit to do this. We are weak in ourselves, and so we pray that your Spirit would give us the courage and ability um, to live this out uh, on a week-to-week basis. We love you, and it's in the name of your Son and the power that he has bestowed upon us through your Spirit that we pray. Amen.